Well, this morning, uh, we are very blessed and have been blessed for the past couple of days to hear from uh, Justin Brown. Uh, Justin and his uh, wife here, Rebecca, have come uh, from Southern California, or I should say they live in Northern California now, and uh, they are uh, missionaries en route to Lebanon. I remember, I think he contacted me back in the fall, and uh, I was recovering uh, from uh, my hospital stay at that time, and we continue to communicate, and we end up sitting down at the beginning of the year. So it's been a long kind of uh, relationship. We've uh, become friends, and Lord has blessed our fellowship. He and his family, uh, three children, are en route to Lebanon. And one of the unique things is that they have a, a family of young children, as, as uh, Rebecca shared this morning and as on Friday. You know, the Lord has given them great peace regarding bringing their family to the Middle East. We don't have too many missionaries that come through that uh, bring their young family to the Middle East, and it's certainly a challenge, certainly a challenge to us as believers. Would we be willing to take our families or to go to a place that in the world's eyes would not be considered a safe place, but we would rest upon the sovereign protection of God as uh, was quoted this morning in Sunday school, Isaiah 26.3, that he, who's, he will keep him in perfect peace, he whose mind is stayed on thee. And so God gives that peace, trusting in his protection and his sovereign hand that protects them. So we're glad that their family is here, and we hope that you'll uh, pray for them and, uh, and give him a warm welcome as he opens the word of God this morning. Justin. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Our uh, text this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 18. So if you would, please stand in honor of God's word, and uh, we'll be reading that text together. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 23. Matthew 18, 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, your forgiveness of us. I just pray that you would bless this time as we open your word together, that you would work in the heart of everyone here uh, 
thank you for your faithfulness to us and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's uh, again such a joy to be with you. Uh, my wife and I have uh, enjoyed so much uh, getting to know uh, your church a little bit better. We've been encouraged by so many of you. And Pastor Joe, uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. We're thankful for the opportunity to uh, visit. Uh, this isn't our first visit to Washington. We, uh, one of our supporting churches is East Ridge Baptist Church over in Kent, which uh, I'm aware you guys are familiar with uh, Pastor John and some of the other pastors there. So uh, we, we love coming to visit Seattle. We have many friends here and uh, excited to add uh, all of you to uh, our friends here. Rebecca and I have been on deputation, raising support to go to the Middle East for about nine months now, full time. And it, it's really been a, a rewarding time for us. We've been blessed by uh, so many churches and individuals, encouraged to see how the Lord is working in so many parts, uh, at least of the West Coast, is uh, where we've been traveling for the most part. But even as we've been blessed in that way, it's been sobering for us to hear the, the burdens and the trials that so many people have. Whenever you visit a new church, wherever you meet new Christians, um, you kind of enter into their world a little bit and hear about the challenges that they face. And uh, sitting with so many different pastors who are faithful men, um, preaching the word, and the, just the challenges they face in their church, along with all of the joys. And it's been remarkable to me to see how many of these trials that people face and that, that challenges that pastors uh, encounter have to do with broken relationships and especially unforgiveness. Uh, now, it's no surprise that our world is full of broken relationships and, and the lack of forgiveness. Uh, it's just a fact of life in a fallen world. None of us is free from the pain that comes from uh, rejecting or, or refusing to forgive others. Uh, how many estranged children have you heard about? How many divorces have you heard about or even maybe uh, been affected by where unforgiveness was, if not the root cause, something that contributed greatly to it? But it's particularly disheartening for us to encounter this kind of thing among believers in the church. How many church splits have you heard about or, uh, again, maybe been affected by where uh, there was so much unforgiveness and strife in the body of Christ, even in families that that tears them apart. It's heartbreaking. And so, just with that in mind, I want to spend a little time, especially, it's neat how the Lord works this out. I wasn't aware that today was uh, Communion Sunday for you. So it's appropriate for us to uh, dwell on these things from the parable of the unforgiving slave. As believers, we love forgiveness, right? It, it defines who we are. We're the community of the forgiven. We, we've been singing about it uh, this morning. How could we ever thank God enough for his forgiving grace in our lives? But when it comes to forgiving other people, sometimes it's not so easy to think about. It's not so easy to, to do. Some people maybe find it easy to forgive, but for most of us, it's very difficult, especially depending on uh, the situation. I think the most difficult uh, request for forgiveness I've ever heard about uh, was from a woman named uh, Corey Tenboom. Many of you are familiar with her. She was a woman who was imprisoned with her sister Betsy by the, the Germans uh, in the, during the Second World War for helping Jews escape the persecution of the Holocaust. Some of you probably read her book, The Hiding Place. Uh, but despite her suffering that she experienced, including the death of her sister in the concentration camp, 
she returned to Germany in 1947 and uh, right after the war began to spread the message of God's forgiveness to a people who obviously were in desperate need of that message. She tells the story, not in her book, but in another place of uh, one evangelistic meeting where she was uh, speaking about God's forgiveness, preaching the gospel, essentially. And a man who approached her, who she instantly recognized as one of the guards at the concentration camp where she had been imprisoned and degraded in so many ways. I just want to read a portion of her story. She says this, Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, and I could not forgive Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Again, we're so thankful for the forgiveness of God. It's how we live, but it can be very difficult to forgive others. Now, maybe you haven't had an experience like that. I would would hope you wouldn't have had something like that happen to you. But that doesn't make forgiveness any easier. But during his ministry, Jesus explained some very important things about forgiveness. And in Matthew 18, he shows us how God himself views our forgiveness of others. And so if you look again at Matthew 18, um, we're going to study a little bit about forgiving each other. Now, just to give you a little bit of the context of Matthew 18, many people are familiar with it just because of its teaching about uh, church uh, discipline. But really, this whole chapter is focused on Um, the picture of believers as children. That's what Jesus uses, this image of a little child. He begins the chapter talking about uh, a child has the humility that every child of God needs. If you want to be part of his kingdom, you need to be humble like a child. He goes on to warn his disciples against causing other people to sin, other believers to sin. Um, other children of God. He Later in verses 10 through 14, he talks about the fatherly care of God for his children, just as a shepherd cares for his sheep. And then he talks about church discipline. And then finally, uh, Peter has been listening to these things, and he asked Jesus a question. He's thinking, you know, there's some people I know that have sinned against me quite a bit. Um, how many times do I need to forgive them? You know, because that's what he had just been talking about with church discipline. And then Jesus responds to him with this parable of the unforgiving slave. So this morning, through that parable, we're going to find that God's fatherly forgiveness is the model and the basis for our forgiveness of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's actually read a little bit more of the introduction here, starting in verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now drop down to verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So imagine, or maybe you don't need to imagine, someone in the church or someone in your family sins against you. Maybe they wronged you deeply, and maybe you have to confront them. You go to them with their sin. And maybe you even have to bring others into the situation because they won't repent. And then they do repent. They hear the the brothers or the sisters that you brought along, and they, they do ask for your forgiveness. How many times uh, are you going to forgive them? What if it's the same sin over and over? Uh, they're, they're heartfelt in their repentance, but it keeps happening. How many times do you forgive? That's Peter's question. Now, before we look at the parable, I just want to talk about the word forgiveness real briefly. It's a very flexible word, as it appears here in verse 21. It, it's often translated differently in other passages as leave, as in leaving something behind, like In Matthew 4, it talks about how the disciples left their nets and followed Jesus. It's the same word. You have to interpret it based on the context. Or in the next chapter, Peter talks about, he's saying to Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. That's the same word, forgive. It means to leave something behind. That's a beautiful picture of forgiveness, of leaving something behind and turning your back on it. Now, notice that forgiveness is not the same as an apology, I understand we use those words often interchangeably, but if you look at the definitions, they're very different ideas. Apology means to give a defense. I mean, what do we call it when we defend the faith, right? It's apologetics. It comes from the same root word. Asking forgiveness is different. Asking for forgiveness involves repentance. It's acknowledging that sin has taken place. You don't really have to do that with an apology. You can say, I'm sorry, but you're just sorry you got caught, or you're sorry that maybe this person was affected, but it doesn't really bother you too much. Forgiveness, however, involves real repentance. It's important to keep that in mind as we are going through this. Peter asks Jesus, should I forgive my brother seven times? And Peter probably thinks he's being magnanimous. You know, that's, you know, probably a lot, right? Same sin over and over. And Jesus responds to him. He takes his number and multiplies it by 70. Uh, makes it even larger. And really what Jesus is saying here is there's no limit to your forgiveness. He's not saying you, you start keeping a book now, you know, 400 and, uh, what is it, 490, you, counting up, you know, 400, 401, and so on, so on. Once you get to the 490, that's it. We're, we're cutting it off. You're, uh, you're uh, not being forgiven anymore. No, of course not. Jesus is saying uh, there's no f- limit to your forgiveness. And then he tells the parable of the unforgiving slave to explain why there is no limit to our forgiveness. Now, there's three scenes in this parable that Jesus tells. First, the king's compassion. Secondly, the slave's hypocrisy. And finally, the king's judgment. And uh, let's just look at these each in turn. First, the king's compassion in verses 23 through 25. A king who is settling accounts with his slaves. And it talks about how, as we just read, one who was brought before him who owed him 10,000 talents. And we need to talk about that a little bit because we don't use talents anymore, obviously. Talent was a denomination of money. It's the largest denomination that he had in that day. So I think our largest right now is a $100 bill, which isn't that much anymore, unfortunately. But that's kind of the idea. This was the largest amount of money. And he owed him 10,000 of those. 
Um, and most of your Bibles probably have a note that say that a talent was the equivalent to 20 years' wages for our labor. So this was way more than a $100 bill. This comes out to 200,000 years of work for a regular laborer. It's just an astronomical amount. Jesus is, again, using hyperbole. He's almost like, it's almost like not a real number at all. It's like we say sometimes, well, he owed him a zillion dollars. You know, it's not even necessarily a real number. It's just a, a placeholder for something that's just incalculably large, a shocking, unpayable amount. Now, it's possible Jesus had in mind a, a high tax official or, or somebody like that, someone who was a slave but had responsibility for the taxes of a whole region. Um, some scholars believe that's what Jesus is referring to. But even if we accept that, um, we know from history that uh, at least at, at one year, in one year, the tax bill for all the region of Judea, for everyone that lived there, the taxes were 600 talents. So even if we accept that this man was some kind of important official who was still a servant of this king, um, it's more than the tax bill of an entire country, many times over. So it's just this kind of hyperbole Jesus is using, but he does give us an actual number. So I think it's helpful to kind of bring this into our terms a little bit so we can get an idea of just how much this was. Um, we don't really have day laborers in the same way that they did then, so maybe you could uh, just bring it over to our minimum wage. Working at minimum wage for 40 hours a week for 200,000 years, there's probably more to it than that. I'm not an archaeologist or the son of an archaeologist, but if you just accept that, it comes out to about $3 billion. So imagine you work at McDonald's and you personally owe somebody $3 billion. Um, even if you were the richest CEO in the world, I looked this up, one of the highest paid CEOs in the world makes $137 million in one year. That's his salary. But even if you made that much, it would take over 20 years to pay off this debt. So the, the uh, master of the slaves says, or, or Jesus says he cannot pay, which is probably one of the larger under, over, uh, understatements in Jesus' stories. Uh, a debt this size would probably involve great malfeasance and fraud. Uh, and so the master says let's, he has to sell everything, his wife, his family, everything, he's own, everything he owns. And obviously that would never even touch this debt. Um, it's just a punishment. And then in verse 26, we see the slave falling to the ground and, and prostrating himself in a, in a, a position of almost worship, uh, begging him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. There's no defense here, no apology. He knows there's nothing he can do but beg for mercy. But imagine, even if the king agreed to this, that he can pay off the debt. What would that mean for this man? His whole life, he would spend every waking moment working off this debt. Um, day after day, week after week, year after year, nothing but this debt hanging over his head. And then when he dies, he knows it'll be passed to his children. Uh, even accepting, even if the king had granted him that mercy, it would have been a terrible existence. But then something unexpected happens in verse 27. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. It's amazing. The word felt compassion is a very deep emotion. In the Gospels, it is only used to describe Jesus' emotions or the emotions of someone in his stories. It's the same word uh, that speaks of Jesus' compassion for the helpless crowds of people back in Matthew 9 who were scattered and weak and had no leader. Jesus felt compassion on them. And it's also used to describe the emotion of the father uh, who sees his prodigal son returning. He felt compassion on his son and ran out to meet him. He for, just, like the son, just like the father of that son, the, the Lord here forgives uh, 
everything. It's much more than the slave even asked for, completely unexpected. No earthly king would ever do this, especially in those days. Now the slaves, his life has really been given back to him. Imagine what that means for him. No more threat of lifetime uh, debt, slavery, and prison. No more separation from his family. His life is given back to him. Now, if you may have guessed, the, the king represents God. Uh, the slave represents us, believers, those who have been forgiven. And the debt is our sin against God. It's really easy for us to lose a perspective on our sin, isn't it? To just kind of get used to grace. It is for me. Passages like this help remind us what we've really been forgiven. Uh, we've never seen hell. We've never experienced that. Or just read about it in Scripture. It's hard to comprehend what that really means, eternal punishment separated from God. I think one of the most terrifying aspects, though, that we read in Scripture about hell is the lack of hope. Here on earth, there's always hope. Even in a, in a seemingly hopeless situation, you know, someone who's been, I don't know, imprisoned in some kind of third world country for the rest of their lives, you know, something might happen. A revolution, a, a meteor strike, something, an earthquake like we read in Acts that released the apostles. There's always something that might happen, some measure of hope. But it's not that way in hell. There's no hope at all. So it's incredible that we've been freed from that, that we've been forgiven of our sin, that the sentence of eternal death has been pardoned because of Christ. And we must never forget that. This is part of what people say about preaching the gospel to yourself, of constantly reminding yourself just how much we've been forgiven. So as you think about this slave who had his life given back to him, remember Remember the day you were saved. Remember the joy you felt as that burden of sin was lifted off of your heart. Uh, someone else had taken the punishment for you, for me. We're free. Now, if you look back at the story, you might expect this man would be thinking and focused on his new life of freedom, but that's not really uh, what he was focused on. Let's look now at the slave's hypocrisy in verses 28 through 30. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So Jesus makes it clear that this man pretty much immediately goes out from the presence of the king and finds, he, he went out and find this guy and starts to choke him um, because of a debt that's owed him from his fellow slave. Um, and this is just really a, the height of hypocrisy. The, slaves, the fellow slave's debt, it says, is 100 denarii. And this is about four months' wages, which is quite a difference between that and 200,000 years. There were 6,000 denarii and just one talent. So if you like fractions, this debt is one six hundred thousandth of the first debt. So uh, quite, a, quite a difference there. And it's interesting, Jesus uses the exact same words. The fellow slave uses almost the exact same words that the first slave had used with his master. He makes the same plea. Look at verse 29. Have patience with me and I will repay you. You'd think that his fellow slave saying this would make the first slave remember what he had just said to the, to the king. Jesus uses the difference between the debt and the, the same words to emphasize the hypocrisy of the first slave. He's willing to accept mercy, but he's not willing to give it. Um, and even more, he's overly harsh about this. He's, he's choking the man and even uh, throwing him in prison, even though the debt could be repaid. It, it was possible for this man to repay the debt, but he's like, no, you're going in prison right now. 
Uh, it's really repulsive, shocking behavior. The most shocking part of this story, I think. The fellow slave's debt pictures the sin of other people against us as believers. There's there really nothing compared to how we've sinned against God. But I want to focus a little, for just a moment on the amount of money that Jesus uses in his story for the, the second slave, the hundred denarii. Jesus could have used any amount he wanted. It's his story. He could have made the contrast even more striking by saying it was one denarii or maybe even less. Like you think of the widow's mites, you know, these tiny amounts that were worthless. Why didn't he make it even more contrast? He makes it a pretty significant amount, right? Four months wages is, you know, that's something. Jesus does this very deliberately. He does this to make it clear that it's still significant when other people sin against us. Uh, the Lord never minimizes that the sin of other people against us, he never says that that is insignificant. It does hurt when people sin against us. God does care about those things. But even though that's true, we need to keep in mind that even though that does hurt and it is significant and it is a real sin against us, it's nothing compared to our sin against God. God knows it's hurt when we're wronged by other, knows it hurts when we're wronged by other people, but he wants us to leave it behind. In fact, he commands us to, as we're going to see now with the king's judgment in verses 31 through 34, the king's judgment. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. This is pretty straightforward. The other slaves in the story mirror our response as the readers or the, the hearers of this story. Just great distress at this injustice. They're shocked at this man's behavior, and they go tell the king. And the king calls him before him and says, I forgave you all that debt. He's emphasizing this, that, that incredible amount, incalculable amount. I just forgave it with a word. He says, shouldn't you have had the same compassion on your fellow slave? It's interesting that the king says that. Another translation has it as, was it not necessary for you to forgive your fellow slave? Slaves don't necessarily have to uh, emulate their king, right? Um, in earthly kings. You know, you might say this as, well, just common decency. But even the consciences of unbelievers would be pricked by this kind of hard-heartedness. But still, you know, it's not really a normal expectation for everyone under a king to be just like him. But this becomes more profound when we remember that the king in this story represents God. And God's slaves are required to be like him. Matthew 5, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 1 John 2, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it is necessary for these slaves to emulate their king. And so because of this man's behavior, the king meets out the just punishment for this man's hard heart. And Jesus makes the connection for us. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. God does not tolerate unforgiveness. Now the question that always comes up when you get to this part of the story is, if these are picturing believers, does that mean we can lose our salvation? Can we lose our forgiveness? This is pretty harsh language, uh, the punishment of this slave. Uh, 
We know from other scriptures, and even Jesus himself, that every true believer, there's no way that they can forfeit their salvation. Just one of dozens of examples I could give you is John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus makes that promise. So some interpreters come to this passage and say, well, maybe this slave is picturing a false believer, someone who was never truly saved. And that does help make some sense of the king's language here. Um, The slave was never really truly forgiven, and so he still acts in this manner. But this creates some other problems with the passage, uh, especially the emphasis on the forgiveness of the debt. Even the king in the story himself affirms that he forgave the slave. And also, if you think of the audience, Jesus is speaking to Peter and the disciples. There's no question of any of their salvation except for Judas. So why would he warn them so fervently like this? For these reasons, it's better to see Jesus' words here as referring to the discipline of a true believer. Uh, The punishment is not picturing a loss of salvation, but rather the severe discipline of the Lord. The Bible is very clear that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, You think also, even as we're thinking of uh, communion, as we're about to partake in a few moments, uh, Paul warns uh, his, uh, his readers in 1 Corinthians 11 about those who are taking communion in an unworthy manner, who the Lord had even killed. He had disciplined them in the manner even in death. And the context of this passage is really the most compelling. We're talking about believers as children in the family of God. Uh, And the kingdom of heaven is like this story. The kingdom has no unbelievers in it. So we're definitely talking about a believer here. And perhaps the strong language and the punishment grates on us a little bit because We've gotten used to grace, as I was saying. We're so used to God's forgiveness that we don't think of sin as being so important to him, as still so sinful. Of course, God's grace will never be removed from us, but we must not sin more that grace may abound, right? God takes sin seriously with us, even as his children. And as Hebrews says, he scourges every son whom he receives to make us more like Christ. So the kingdom of heaven is like this parable in that those who are citizens of heaven ought to respond to the infinite forgiveness of God by being quick to forgive each other. But in addition to showing the basis and reason for our forgiveness, this parable also teaches us that our forgiveness is modeled on God's forgiveness. The slave was judged because he did not emulate the king's forgiveness. And so there's a lot of things we could talk about. How does God forgive us? We This morning, we've already read a little bit from Psalm 103, and that teaches us that God, most importantly, forgives us permanently. Another part of that psalm says he takes our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. And in Jeremiah 31, it says he forgives our iniquity under the new covenant, and he remembers our sin no more. more. God doesn't forgive and forget. He forgives and chooses not to remember. And that's how we are called to forgive each other. Um, Some Bible teachers have condensed this kind of thinking about God's forgiveness into uh, three promises. When you forgive someone, you're making three promises to them. First, you're promising that you're not going to bring this offense up to them anymore. You've left it behind. You know, later when something else happens, especially in families between husbands and wives, there's that temptation to bring that up and use it against them. You know, remember when you did this to me? You owe me for that. If you forgive someone, you make a promise not to do that. Secondly, the second promise is you, uh, 
promise not to bring up this offense to other people, you know, asking for prayer. Um, I've been struggling with this sin. Someone's done this to me. Can you pray for me? Let me tell you everything that happened. No, that's not how it works. There's nothing wrong with asking for prayer, but we made a promise to that person, even if we're struggling with continuing in that forgiveness, not to bring it up to other people. Good rule of thumb, if, if you're not part of the solution or the problem, then that's not asking for prayer. That's just gossip. The third promise is that you're not going to bring up this offense to yourself. You control your thinking to avoid dwelling on the sin that that person committed against you. Um, because if you do that, even if you don't bring it up to them, even if you don't bring it up to other people, if you keep dwelling on it, it's just going to breed bitterness in your heart. As I said, God doesn't f- try to forget it. He can't forget anything. He chooses not to remember it. And that's what we do as well. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, perhaps you're listening to me this morning and you, you've never known God's forgiveness. You are still provoking him to his face um, and are living that way. If that's the case, then all of this talk about forgiving other people is really meaningless Uh, You don't even have the ability to forgive other people the way God forgives. Uh, If that's you, if you haven't repented of your sin, there's no better day than today. God has his arms open to you, as it says in Isaiah, uh, holding his hands open to a rebellious people, speaking of Israel there, but applicable to everyone who hasn't been forgiven. If you have any questions at all about salvation or forgiveness of God, please uh, find a friend, someone that you trust, Uh, Talk to me, talk to Pastor Joe. Make sure that you're right before God, that you've experienced his peace and forgiveness. But for the rest of us, those who know God's forgiveness, those who have that debt repaid that we could never pay ourselves, I would just urge you, think about your relationships. Think about your spouse, your, your parents, your children, your friends, those relationships. Is there unforgiveness there? Are you withholding forgiveness? Maybe it's a pattern of sin that you need to ask forgiveness for. Maybe, uh, maybe it's something that happened years ago and you're trying to forget, hoping that one day you won't remember it again. Whatever the case, I, I beg you, be reconciled with the people in your life. Uh, you'll never forget about that unforgiven offense. It will always be there in your thoughts. And those relationships in your life that have been damaged by your own sin, those will never heal until you seek forgiveness from that other person. How could we, who have been forgiven so much, deny it to others? And as I read just recent, just a few minutes ago, um, we need to be aware of God's punishment of unforgiveness as well. It might feel very difficult, but it's through God's forgiveness and transforming power that we have the ability to forgive each other from the heart no matter the sin. Let me just read the uh, end of Corey Ten Boom's story. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. 
Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what, the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness toward their enemies remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long time, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let's pray together. Dear Father, how could we ever thank you enough for paying our debt? Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for freeing us from the hopelessness of the punishment of hell. Thank you for giving us new life in you. Thank you for giving us the ability to forgive each other. I just pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know your forgiveness, that they would turn away from their sin and embrace you, that they would know that peace. And for those of us who do know you, Father, I pray that we would search our hearts if there's any unforgiveness dwelling there, if there's any sin that we've harbored against other people, that we would seek their forgiveness and have our relationships be reconciled. I pray that you would bring unity to the church. I pray that you'd bring unity to this church that can only take place when relationships are reconciled among each other. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.